Today on Follow Friday, we're going to talk with Bullseye host Jesse Thorne about Scruffy Dogs, the worst albums of the 20th century, and dad movies. You know, if you want somebody to watch Das Boot with you, I am there every time. I'm thrilled to watch Das Boot with you. If you want to watch a movie where George Clooney as an extended sequence where it's just him framed against a bank of snow and he's assembling and disassembling his hitman gun, in. But first, I want to thank everyone who has donated to support Follow Friday on Patreon. This is a completely independent podcast, and I really appreciate you. A special shout out to our newest patron, Danielle, who I forgot to thank in last week's episode. Oops. I also want to thank our sponsors. You want to sound smart in your next meeting, right? Of course you do. But here's the problem. You don't have time to keep up with all the latest updates on social media. And that's why you should listen to this podcast from the global creative agency, Gray. It's called Five Things This Week in Social. The hosts have partnered with some of the world's biggest brands, and they are experts in social media and emerging tech. Listen to Five Things This Week in Social wherever you get your podcasts, or search for it with a hashtag and the number five things. Today's show is brought to you by Apprentice, which helps small and mid-sized businesses find great talent to work for them. Apprentice matches C-suite executives and business founders with college students that work on projects related to digital marketing, sales, data analytics, and executive assistance. If you have fewer than 30 employees, you can get four weeks of free executive assistance thanks to our new partner, Apprentice. Connect with their matching team at this URL followfriday.net slash apprentice. Again, that's followfriday.net slash apprentice. Okay, here's the show. Today is a good day to meet some new friends. Everyone make a way. The show is a buffet. Of course you should know. Let's have a swirl. Well, that's enough for a place. I'm Eric Johnson. Welcome to Follow Friday, the podcast about who you should follow online. Every week, I talk to creative people about who they follow and why. This is a guided tour to the best people on the internet, led by your favorite writers, podcasters, comedians, and more. If this is your first episode of the show, take a moment now and please follow or subscribe in your podcast app. Today on the show is Jesse Thorne, the host of the podcast and public radio interview show Bullseye. He's also the co-host of Jordan Jesse Go, the bailiff on Judge John Hodgman, and the founder of Maximum Fun, which is a network of excellent artist-owned podcasts. He also has the greatest mustache in all of podcasting. You can find Jesse on Twitter at Jesse Thorne, and his first name is spelled J-E-S-S-E. Jesse, welcome to Follow Friday. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So nice to meet you. Long last. I've been following your work for years. I was looking in my email for what's the oldest email I have from Maximum Fun. And apparently I gave money to The Sound of Young America back in 2011, uh, back before it became Bullseye. So <laughs> That's great. You and Bill Hader. Bill Hader was an early PayPal member of The Sound of Young America. Very grateful to him forever. I think Bill Hader has more money than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when this episode drops, you will have just concluded your annual fundraising drive at Maximum Fun. I was looking at my email because I've been a member of Max Fund since 2018. But for folks who don't know, could you explain you know, how Maximum Fund works and why do you do this fundraising drive every year? Well, I started Maximum Fun essentially because I had been doing my show, the show that's now my NPR show, Bullseye, started as my college radio show. I started podcasting it five years after I started it at the very dawn of podcasting around 2005 or so. And I quit my job and moved to Los Angeles with my wife around 2007, 2008. And I, I needed a way to pay my bills to eat. And unfortunately, <laughs> while my show was already on some public radio stations around the country, uh, that did not really pay anything. So I thought, how can I build a business infrastructure around this medium that no one knows or cares about? So I could raise the sort of $1,500 a month I needed to have catastrophic health insurance and rent and food. And 
Maximum Fun was sort of the result of that. So in the many years since then, that's now 15 or so years ago, we've grown to be many tens of thousands. I can't remember. We might even be into the six figures of of members who send us a few bucks a month and that money goes to the shows that are part of Maximum Fun. So we try and keep it to a minimum, the amount of asking we do. But once a year, we ask people who listen to to join and kick us five bucks or whatever. And honestly, it's it's incredible that it has worked so well. I mean, this is these days there's there's Patreon, you know, there's payment processor platforms to do this for you. When I started, it was like copying and pasting the HTML code from a PayPal button. <laughs> but yeah, at, at the end of the day, like we're really happy because it lets us allow creators to own their work and for all of us to work for the audience instead of working for advertisers or a big company. And yes, so longtime listeners of Follow Friday may have heard some Maximum Fun podcast hosts on the show. Travel Anderson, the co-host of Fanti, they were one of the very first guests on this show. And Freddie Wong, who co-hosted Story Break, a comedy screenwriting podcast he was on last year. And so you, you only ask people for money once a year, but people can become members at any time, right? Exactly. Yeah. Anybody who listens can always go to MaximumFun.org slash join. But you know, if you're here, if you're hearing me now and you've never heard of me before in your life, I shouldn't be asking you for money. Maybe <laughs> if you like me on this, try listening to one of the shows for a few months and see how it sits with you. Very savvy, very wise. Uh, well, yeah, so like you said, you, you've been podcasting a long time since before anyone cared about podcasting. A lot has changed over the years. Sound of Young America became Bullseye, Jordan Jesse Go, Judge John Hodgman. You're overseeing this whole network. And this is maybe a silly question, but why? Like, what is it about audio that has kept you going in this space? Affordable. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, good answer. In all honesty, I sometimes wonder, like, if I, I'm just turned forty recently, if I were five years younger, right? If I was instead of being the oldest of millennials, if I if I was a medium millennial, would I have gone into audio? Because I think that the reason I ended up at the college radio station was because I couldn't afford a video camera. And, you know, it was a time when even if you were a film major at my university, you didn't get to touch a camera until you got a film camera your final year, right? Wow. So, and by the time I was three or four years out of school for 800 or a thousand bucks, an amount of money that you could kind of raise, you could buy a, a digital camera that worked well enough that you could shoot little things for the internet on them. So partly it was just that one day I went to the college radio station and I saw that basically making a radio show was like some sliders and up was louder and down was quieter. And I was like, oh, I could figure that out. <laughs> um, and, you know, still like the ability to make, you know, my NPR show, Bullseye, you know, I made it an hour long syndicated public radio show by myself with no outside help while I had another job for years, Right. And I couldn't have done that making three-minute videos, right? Mm -hmm. You know, here I am. I do Judge John Hodgman. I do Bullseye. I do Jordan Jesse Go every week. And I have other stuff I do as well. And that is in part because audio is an immediately accessible medium, right? All that it required was one day I did, I did sell my Dodge Dart and I bought a mic and I bought a phone hybrid, the machine that allows your <laughs> mixing board to connect to a phone line. This was yes. before the days of reliable uh, video conferencing on the internet. So in substantial part, it's because it's available, right? Like I didn't have any money. I didn't have any access to a job. I didn't have any access to capital. So it was available. The other reason is I think for these particular things that I have been doing, it is the appropriate medium. Just like any other medium, audio has particular strengths and they have to do with the role that audio plays in our lives. You know, I am a big baseball fan and I listen to a lot more baseball games than I watch. And the reason is that listening to a baseball game is the thing I love to do while I am doing the other things in my life that are boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there are those who would argue that uh, anything involving a baseball game is boring, but um, and they wouldn't be completely wrong. <laughs> I say that as a big baseball fan. But like audio is something that can be with us in a very personal way while also 
not demanding that we have to be like intensely uh, hot level engaged in it. And so things like Bullseye, which is an in-depth interview show, like there are people who have done that kind of show on television, but only a few. And it's very difficult to put over on TV. Whereas the kind of hour long in-depth conversation about how and why someone makes their art that I do on Bullseye, that's a great accompaniment for a ride to and from work. And with Jordan Jesse Go, which is a very silly freewheeling comedy show with sort of no content at all, like (laughs) audio is the experience that most closely mimics the feeling of like laughing with your friends, which is essentially all Jordan Jesse Go is. I mean, it's like the most distilled, intense, almost abstract version of laughing with your friends that could exist. And that's something that even when they were giving TV shows to podcasts, even during either of the periods, either <laughs> 13 years ago or uh, five years ago when they were giving TV shows to podcasts, like there's no TV show of Jordan Jesse Go. There's no TV show that's just people sitting there talking about abstract nonsense, listing the names of stores in Burbank. <laughs> so, you know, like th- these things are things that are are native to that medium. And, uh, and I'm grateful for it. I think I also probably... I'm bald and uh, not a lot of bald people on TV. So uh, there's another reason. <laughs> yeah. D- David Cross took up all of the, the, the bald energy for everyone. And no, no one else was allowed on TV for a while. <laughs> yeah. I mean, David Cross literally had to murder James Carvel just to get on TV, which is weird. They're not even in equivalent lanes. There can be only one. <laughs> yeah. David Cross is like, I guess I'm the raging Cajun now. <laughs> All right. Well, let's find out who Jesse Thorne follows when he's not listening to baseball games or podcasting. You can follow along with us today. Every person he recommends will be linked in the show notes and in the transcript at followfridaypodcast.com slash Jesse Thorne. It's Final Friday. Jesse, before the show, I gave you a list of categories, and I asked you to tell me about some people you follow who fit in those categories. Your first pick is in the category someone you have a crush on, and you said Archie who is on Instagram at archie.was.here. So Archie was here with periods between the words. My social media producer, Sydney, is going to have a field day with this follow recommendation because Archie is an extremely adorable dog. I think this is the first animal recommendation we've had on the show other than the Cincinnati Zoo. We talked a lot about Fiona the Hippo on a previous episode. So out of all the many dogs on the internet, why Archie? Why do you have a crush on Archie? So I wasn't on Instagram for a really long time. You know, I would use Facebook a little bit for the same things that people use Facebook for, which is just sort of like seeing pictures of of your cousin's children or seeing memes that your aunt posts, you know, finding out what your buddy from high school is up to. I I, I like that. And you would use Facebook a little bit for that. But mostly I was on Twitter, which I saw as a venue for people I know to make jokes. (laughs) Um, and I joined Instagram because I have this menswear blog called put this on in a store associated with it. And, you know, fashion stuff does not happen on Twitter or Facebook. (laughs) So I thought I I better be on Instagram. I had, I had resisted, I probably resisted it for five, eight years. And, you know, when you join a new platform, you're trying to figure out like, what is this for? And I knew that in my heart, I know people say that Twitter is for breaking news and stuff like that. For me, Twitter is a list of jokes. Instagram, I was like, well, what is this? One thing that was available to me was it was a list of jokes. Instead of being a list of jokes my friends had made, it would it could have been a list of jokes my friends had made that had been, then been stolen by those accounts that just take <laughs> pictures of people's jokes on Twitter and post them on Instagram and somehow make money out of stealing other people's jokes. But no, I, I, I was like, you know, I was following some menswear stuff. And, you know, a lot of men's fashion stuff is very politically, I will say, aspirational. Uh, mm. Another way to put that would be it's douchey. It involves a lot of people staring at little glasses of scotch or smoking cigars or like showing off their Patek Philippe's. And it's fine. Like, you know, some of those people have great clothes, you know, I understand, but um, that was kind of bumming me out. And then there's a lot of brand stuff and that was kind of bumming me out. 
But my wife said, do you follow any animals? And I said, oh, I should be following animals on Instagram. <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> that's what Instagram is for for me because I didn't want to get involved in like, I'm not crazy about high production value social media influencer novelty pets sure. on Instagram. Like I don't need to necessarily see like your like llama that you're pouring your life's energy <laughs> into making famous enough that it can headline LlamaCon. You you want a real American blue collar dog is what you I like. just want to <laughs> see I just want to see funny scruffy dogs and my favorite one is Archie was here. He's not a famous dog. He's friends with another dog I was following. That's how I met him. <laughs> He's not even a verified dog, so he could just be an Archie was here impersonator. <laughs> but like, reliably speaking, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff on Instagram that I follow for professional reasons for for the fashion stuff, and rarely does that stuff make me feel better. <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, sometimes some people have fun with their clothes. There's there's real normal people on Instagram who who share great pictures of their clothes. Uh, but in general, like the thing that most reliably makes me happy is uh, to see a scruffy dog that's in true in life and on social media and to have a reliable source of scruffy dog uh, looking at other than my own scruffy dogs is a... I was going to say, yeah, you have some scruffy dogs of your own. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, like, I will go to the Pasadena City College flea market. I go to the flea market to buy stuff for my, my store to put this on shop. And uh, they have this Humane Society van that comes out there with with dogs in it. And I will be there and I will be like taking pictures of myself with the dogs and texting them to my wife to like, I guess, like brag to her that I'm meeting more cute dogs than her (laughs) right then. And if, if I meet a scruffy dog, at the flea market, it's over. There's this dog at the flea market named Concha, and Concha is my buddy. And I do not know what Concha's owners' names are. I've met them 15 times, 20 times. They just know that I'm there to go back behind their booth and play with their dog while they're trying to make money. <laughs> <laughs> Does your wife have to tell you, no, Jesse, you cannot bring another dog home? Or is it sort of an unspoken unspoken thing that uh, this is ju- this is just a, a passing friendship? <laughs> That's something that we're working on together at all times, <laughs> is not bringing more dogs home. Because we have, we have two very, very old dogs and three very complicated children. So our house is profoundly full. <laughs> and in fact, I think that like at such time as we, as we ever get another dog, if, if when, when we have, when, when our dogs pass away, I think we may end up getting a more regular family dog, you know, like a, mm-hmm. you know, like a golden retriever or whatever, which is fine. Those are sweet, sweet dogs. But, um, but yeah, my heart belongs to dogs that look like they should be carrying a bindle over their shoulder. Dogs that look like Archie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And shout out to shout out to City Willie. That's the OG dog that introduced me to Archie. I, I no shade towards City Willie. I love you still, City Willie. You still have my heart. <laughs> it's just that uh, Archie's better. And, and I saw that Archie lives in Philadelphia. Is uh, City Willie also a Philly dog? Or uh, do, do you know the backstory? I think a Philly area dog. Yeah, the backstory is they were introduced by Terry Gross. <laughs> I don't know. I was just thinking of... For some reason, my two Philadelphia things were Eric Lindros, the hockey player, and Terry Gross, the public radio host. Apparently, that's what I know about Philadelphia, that and Benjamin Franklin or whatever. Yep. I'm looking at City Willie's Instagram profile, and it says, featured on Judge John Hodgman. So so City Willie, had, you know, got that bump, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, Archie Was Here is getting the Follow Friday bump now, so... There you go. There you go. Well, so when did you know that you were a dog person? Was there a specific dog that you met when you were, when you were young where it's like, oh, okay, I'm really into dogs? I had a dog as a kid, but only until I was like six or seven, so... I didn't have a close relationship with that dog. I mean, I like the dog, but mm-hmm. you know, when you're, you have to be a little older before you really bond with a dog like that. And that dog literally went to live in the country. Like, actually, not even. It didn't just die. And my mom told me that. Uh, <laughs> it was a, it was it was like an Australian Shepherd mix, and just it was just not a suitable city dog. 
Yeah. So my mom gave it to her dental hygienist (laughs) 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 who lived in the exurbs. But then I didn't have a dog for a long time. My dad had a dog for a little while when I was in my like late teens, early 20s. Um, and that was, he was a sweet dog, but he's just dumb as a bag of rocks and slobbered all over <laughs> everything. And Best kind of dog. And I didn't have a dog for a long time. And my wife is a really intense caretaker personality and always has mm. been, just is a very maternal person. And she had had a dog as a young child, but had had to give him up because her parents had to move a lot when she was a kid. So she had always wanted to have one. And I just thought, well, then I couldn't travel or whatever. Mm. And there's just nothing that my wife has been more right about in my entire life. And she's right about a lot of things. She's an amazing person. Then that we should get that dog. Like we got a dog who unfortunately was ill and passed away not long after we got him. Mm. But that experience led me to get my, the older of my two dogs that I have now. And she's like 14 or something at this point. And just just absolutely the love of my life. Like it means so much to me to have her, like I I have very severe migraine headaches and, you know, she like come and take care of me when I was, Hmm. you know, crying in bed, she would just come jump up on the bed and kind of put herself underneath my armpit, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, like I, I think I will probably be a dog person for the rest of my life because it is, I've just been awestruck by how, rewarding it is yeah but now you don't have any accounts where you post as your dog right you don't have an, a social <laughs> account for for your dog no i do i do post pictures of my dogs and i don't post pictures of my children because <laughs> i feel like my dogs g- give up their right to consent the second that they yeah. eat the like food that i pour into a bowl for them uh-huh. <laughs> um, whereas my children i think probably retain their retain the the rights of publicity to their own image i agree with that that's a good line yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean my dogs are a lot cuter than i am so uh they're a very <laughs> valuable social media asset my, my favorite thing is when you can see someone's personality coming out in the way they post about their pet and only that way. So my friend Emily, who is a public radio journalist, she has a dachshund named Otto von Bismarck. And Otto has a Twitter account where he just only tweets in this chaotic, ungrammatical dog speak, lots of exclamation points and ponderous questions. And I, I think that's how Emily wishes she could tweet in, in, a, in an unfettered world. <laughs> One of my top categories of posts about my dogs, I don't, I don't post pictures of my dogs all that much, but one that Judge John Hodgman listeners have heard about because John got obsessed with it for a little while is called Sharing the Head Hole. And that's where I pick up my poor dog, Coco, who, as I said, is like 14 years old. She's a terrier chihuahua mix, you know, maybe like 15 pound dog, pretty small dog. And I've spent the last 12 years or whatever since I adopted her, browbeating her into general submission to me, like carrying her around, turning her upside down, right? like petting her when she'd rather not be bothered. She she pretty much has accepted it completely. And the greatest evidence of this is that sometimes I will announce to my wife, skin to fur, which, you know, skin to skin is when you hold a baby against your body and it's (laughs) supposed to be good to regulate the... So I'll do skin to fur. So I will lift up my t-shirt, put my dog underneath my t-shirt so that her head (laughs) sticks out next to mine out of the head hole of the t-shirt. And then Teresa will be like, Teresa will be like, do you want me to take a picture? (laughs) <laughs> and I'll be like sharing the head hole. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that was Archie, who is on Instagram at archie.was.here. Who is your favorite animal to follow on Instagram? Come on, people. I know you've got them. Send me your recommendations by emailing hello at followfridaypodcast.com. It's Follow Friday. Jesse, let's move on to your next follow. I asked you to tell me about someone who makes you think. And you said Jamel Bowie, who is on Twitter and Instagram at jbowie, and his username is spelled J-B-O-U-I-E. Jamel is a New York Times opinion columnist, a political analyst for CBS News, and he's also a really good photographer and the co-host of a film podcast called Unclear and Present Danger. So quadruple threat here. Uh, Do you remember how you were first introduced to Jamel's work? Jamel was writing for Slate. He used to write for Slate mm-hmm. before yes. he started writing for the Times. And I think he just he, he just tweeted at me about something. 
uh, on one of our shows or something. He's a he's a pretty regular listener to the Flophouse. I think he's listened to Judge John Hodgman and Bullseye before. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's funny. <laughs> Isn't that the like political commentator for Slate? Right. He's got a distinctive name, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I sort of like, you know, that thing where somebody sort of makes contact with you online tangentially and you're like, okay, I'm going to. And I find out if this person's, you know, let's let's see if this person's for real. Let's see what their right. story is. And uh, it turns out Jamel is a level of for real that I cannot wrap my mind around. <laughs> the extent to which Jamel Bowie is a nerd best case scenario is beyond the ability of my words to express. I mean, you mentioned so for. OK, let's talk about what Jamel is up to. Yeah. Jamel is a genuinely insightful political commentator, and he's not insightful in the way that I think too many political columnists are, which is to say he is not primarily engaged in electoral horse races, except to the extent to which they have practical effects in our lives. Instead, he is a genuine historical expert about the history of the United States, He has the remarkable quality of having that deep appreciation and understanding of the founding fathers that we associate with Republican senators and the very clear-eyed and well-informed historical understanding of the relationship between the power structures in the United States and African-American people in particular. He's African-American. And... I think that that is an extraordinarily valuable and useful set of expertises. You know, I think that either of those are valuable in and of themselves, but like, I think that as a combination, somebody who is capable of understanding the systems of the United States as they were set up by these people who were undoubtedly brilliant and remarkable in many ways, uh, and then understanding them in the context of the ways that they have directly affected the law and African-American people over the course of the last 200 whatever years, right? So that's one thing. Then he is a gifted, a gifted breakfast cereal reviewer. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not familiar with this. This is another thing he does. Breakfast cereal reviewer. Yeah, he has a series of video breakfast cereal reviews uh, that he does for Serious Eats. Today I have uh, an unusual cereal, not as unusual as things we've done in the past, but still relatively unusual. This is General Mills Cinegram Toast Crunch, which appears to be some kind of combination of cinnamon toast and golden grams. Two, I think, S-tier cereals, two things that are really fantastic, but I've never really had them together. And of course, uh, this cereal is terrible for you, lots of sodium and sugar, so you should not eat these things. I feel compelled to say this. I'm doing this for science, of course. My daughter is obsessed with them. Uh, And I'm so proud of her because just what a wonderful thing for her to be obsessed with because Jamel is such an insightful food person. He's a great cook and he's uh, very serious about it, uh, but not in like a sad doctrinaire way. And he's incredible. I mean, he's a he's one of the most beloved guests on my friends, uh, the Doughboys podcast, which is about fast food. He's not no no pretense, just insights. Right. Right. Then. probably the internet's number one dad movie enthusiast, Mm -hmm. which I like, this is a person who can talk to you about Battleship Potemkin as readily as he can talk to you about Bloodsport (laughs) and be genuinely insightful on all fronts. Incredible that he can do this. And then, as you mentioned, he's a really skilled photographer. (laughs) It, it's kind of offensive when someone is this multi-talented, you know? It's like, can you just be good at one thing so I feel a little bit better? But no, I'm, I'm glad that he he's, he has all these different avenues for his creativity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, f- our friend Freddie Wong, a past guest on your show, is a, is a similar kind of thing where you like you meet somebody and you're like, sure, well, this person's a genius, mm-hmm. you know, of course. But like, as it as it. <laughs> I was I was on the exceptionally gifted track in school, but I have no skills of note. <laughs> like I've never been able to translate my gifts into practical real world effects. So people who can do it in multiple areas mm-hmm. are extraordinary to me. 
you know, Freddie Wong is making films, making great podcasts. He's a f- also a food genius. He's got all these insights into uh, scams and flams on the internet, which is something that he's an expert on. And then besides that, you're like, oh, and you're making extraordinary pottery, Freddie? <laughs> so I, I just have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of admiration for someone who brings actual insight both to Thomas Jefferson's relationship to slavery and uh, the fact that uh, Spider-Man 2 is the best Spider-Man movie ever made. I agree with that. Yeah, Spider-Man 2 is up there with the best Marvel movies, for sure. It's the best one. It's not even close. Best one. Um, I mean, Spider-Verse. Yeah, exactly. Spider-Verse is my number one. We can't sidetrack this. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Jamel's writing for the New York Times. I think there's, there's at least in my internet bubble, there's a significant cohort of people who get mad about at the times for either the things their opinion writers say or the way the reporters frame stories and i'm a big supporter of media criticism i think any big powerful organization should be scrutinized but specifically jamel's writing is as you mentioned it's steeped in both history and the present and it provides readers with perspective on politics which perspective is very underrated I, I think the ability of a talented writer to step back and encourage you to think about these things in a different way and not just chase whatever people are yelling about at the moment is is an extremely important skill. It's, it, we're, we're very lucky to have him, I think. I also would add to this that it's easy to get ahead in social media and in political commentary by being intensely strident. Mm. It's a lot easier to generate excitement by yelling and screaming and taking unnuanced positions. Right. And something that I really admire about Jamal is, look, I've talked to the man four times in my life, right? But mm-hmm. um, in my experience, a genuinely like nice, decent guy and someone who does not sacrifice the strength and clarity of his positions in making those positions genuinely considered and nuanced. He is not someone who equivocates for the sake of equivocation, but he is also not someone who is afraid to be clear and and strong when when the situation calls for it. I also want to give a shout out to Jamel's Letterboxd account. He's one of my favorite people to follow on the movie nerd app Letterboxd. And I mentioned earlier, he's the co-host of a podcast called Unclear and Present Danger, where he and his co-host John Gans cover post-Cold War political thrillers, uh, The Hunt for Red October, JFK. I guess maybe these are also kind of kind of dad movies. I, I don't know. Um, are, are you, are you uh, very much into these sorts of movies? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love, well, I think the place where Jamel and I coincide is probably Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. It's such a great movie. I am not a trash movie guy, generally speaking. You know, you won't find me often, very often watching Bloodsport, maybe a Jackie Chan movie sometimes, but uh, I really love a well-made, perhaps slightly boring genre film. You know, if you want somebody to watch Das Boot with you, I am there every time. Oh, I'm thrilled to watch Das Boot with you. If you want to watch a movie where George Clooney as an extended sequence where it's just him framed against a bank of snow and he's assembling and disassembling his hitman gun, in, in for a pe- You want to watch a high quality Elmore Leonard adaptation? Come to me. Let's watch The Limey. I will watch it anytime. I, I've only seen Jackie Brown. I, I think I need to. I think you've just given me like three more films I need to put on my watch list. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Well, that was Jamel Bowie, who is on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd at jbowie. And incidentally, if you want to follow me on Letterboxd, I'm at heyheyesj. We are going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back in a minute with Jesse Thorne. Today's show is brought to you by Apprentice, which helps executives and entrepreneurs delegate tasks in digital marketing, sales, and project management. Their apprentices are college students from top schools who go through special training so they can work in your business as marketing managers, sales representatives, and project specialists. 
If you're a C-level executive with fewer than 30 employees, you can get four weeks of free executive assistance thanks to Apprentice. So connect with their matching team at followfriday.net slash apprentice. Again, that's followfriday.net slash apprentice. Today's show is brought to you in part by a podcast that I really enjoyed called Square Peg. It's about a vengeful one-eyed British curmudgeon on a decades-long mission to have his brother thrown in jail. In 2017, an American suburban dad named Rob Collins accidentally gets sucked into Frank's bizarre world and goes on a two-year quest to help him and to learn the truth. Rob tells Frank's story with curiosity, integrity, and most importantly, empathy. Make some tea on a rainy day and binge this show. Check it out at squarepegpodcast.com. I want to tell you about another podcast I love, and I think you're going to love it too. Upworthy Weekly, Upworthy's first podcast, is a lighthearted look at some of their most popular and engaging stories. Delivered to your podcast feed every Saturday, it's the perfect way to shake off the Monday to Friday news cycle with a refreshing dose of good news. Join Todd Perry, one of Upworthy's most prolific writers, and Allison Rosen, a podcaster, writer, and TV personality best known for the show Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend, as they go through the week's best stories about humanity. Subscribe to Upworthy Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. It's Final Friday! Welcome back to Follow Friday. Jesse, I asked you for someone who makes you laugh, and you said Blaine Kapach, who is on Twitter at Blaine Kapach, and his name is spelled B-L-A-I-N-E-C-A-P-A-T-C-H. Blaine is a comedian and a writer and more, and when I asked you to come on Follow Friday, you warned me that you would spend the whole show laughing at half-remembered tweets from Blaine. So, <laughs> did, did, you, did you discover him through Twitter? Did you already know him as a comedian from just being in L.A.? How, 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 did, you, how did you discover Blaine? Blaine is a, you know, a moderately successful stand-up comedian and a veteran comedy writer. He, you know, if people, if people know him as a comic, it would probably be because he hosted the show Beat the Geeks on Comedy mm-hmm. Central. Mm-hmm. But I think more than anything... He is known in the comedy world as just being one of those people who is so full of jokes that they can't contain them within their physical body. Right. The kind of person who is like a always overflowing kettle of perfect jokes. My uh, co-host Jordan, uh, Jordan Morris, wrote for a comedy game show on Comedy Central called At Midnight. And Blaine came to work for At Midnight at one point. And every week, Jordan would come in to do Jordan, Jesse Go. And, you know, Jordan had been a professional comedy writer guy for 15 years. So it's not like he had never met a great comedy writer. Right, already a pro. And he worked with lots of great people on At Midnight. Yeah. And he would just come, sit down, and he would say, without even, he would just say, oh, I have to tell you what Blaine said this week. I have to tell you about some things that Blaine thought of. And that is basically what Blaine's Twitter account is. Mm. Like at one point, Blaine wrote this set of tweets, the Rolling Stone 500 best albums of the 20th century or whatever had just come out. And so he just wrote Rolling Stone's 500 worst albums. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he wrote 500 jokes. Oh, my God. He wrote five. One, number 494 is Cheap Trick, Live at Yoshinoya. Um, <laughs> one of them is Philip Glass's classic album, Put Him on the Glass. <laughs> <laughs> I saw I saw the first of these tweets and I thought there's no way that this is a thread of 500 jokes. I thought it was just going to be 500 through 496, but I just opened it and you are not exaggerating. He wrote 500 fake album titles. Bruno Mars is me in a motion capture suit by Andy Circus. <laughs> um, it just I mean Blaine is so is so irrepressible. Yeah. And the jokes are so consistently good. Like it's not that every every joke is a 10 joke. Right. It's just that I can't believe how f- few sixes there are. Right. Like it's as though he could just sit there and every 5 minutes put out a 9 out of 10 joke. <laughs> like it, it is 
absolutely awe-inspiring. And it's just about it's just about anything in the world at any time. So he just he just tweeted as we record this, he just tweeted, they keep saying critical race theory like they just learned it, the way my eight-year-old says D's nuts all the time. <laughs> But then it's like, it's not like topical. It's not like he's doing topical jokes all the time. Like he just tweeted yesterday, he tweeted, if you lived here, you'd be home by now and the cops wouldn't bust you for DUI because you'd be in your own driveway. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, This is is one of those things where I frequently on the show marvel at the ability of people like Blaine, funny people who can consistently come up with just quality material but I think here my my internet experience, my savviness played against me here because I w- just I, I can't get over this Rolling Stone list. There's so many <laughs> there, there are so many people who tweet the joke where it's like, okay, here's a 384 part thread where I'm gonna explain this, and the joke is of course that they never have any replies to that original tweet. There is no thread. Just the the sheer audacity and the brilliance of the Rolling Stone 500 worst album list. I'm going to spend the rest of the day reading this list. <laughs> Eric, yeah. all my smooth move X-laxes live in smooth move Texlax. <laughs> <laughs> I mean like the thing about the thing about Blaine that I I mean like I Blaine is a really good dude in addition yeah. to being a, a comedy genius, but like the thing that I love most about Blaine is that what I really want for Twitter and like I end up engaging in the discourse in Twitter and sure. then I feel bad about it. Right. But like the thing that I love about Blaine is that he still very much represents the thing that I came to love on Twitter. The reason that I stuck around when I started on Twitter 15 years ago or whatever, which was wouldn't it be great if there was a place where we could share the jokes that we thought of so everyone could hear them. Yep. And wouldn't it be great if there was a place you could go so you could see the jokes that your friends made? <laughs> and like when your friend is Blaine Kapatch, it's like, what a home run. <laughs> Number 310. What if I sang about how I would have done it by O.J. Simpson? <laughs> uh, number 306. What's the name of that band? It's a three word name by My Morning Jacket. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop now. I got I, I to close this tab. <laughs> he also will tweet at least once a day. He will. He used to write for Mad TV. Yeah. And he will tweet at least once a day, quick, get Mad TV back on the air so I can pitch. (laughs) And it's just puns. I mean, it's just like silly. This one says, quick, get Mad TV back on the air so I can pitch shaved by the bells. Um, B-E-L-Z, Richard Belzer. Um, But like, it's just, it's just silliness. It's just true, true, profound silliness. And then once in a while, he tweets about a vintage guitar he likes. That's nice. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, hey, and in addition to being this extremely talented comedian, he's also in the cast of Nerd Poker, which is a Dungeons and Dragons podcast hosted by Brian Passain, fellow comedian. Um, yeah, it, Dan Telfer as well. Yeah, and and he's the longtime announcer for the Los Angeles Derby Dolls, a women's banked roller derby league. I watched a little bit of Los Angeles Derby Dolls on YouTube, and he has this great sports announcer voice. Another multi-talented person. Have you ever seen this? Have you have you ever seen the, this uh, Derby League? One of my colleagues actually is a former Derby Doll, really, uh, who is also a sometime Derby Doll announcer. And Blaine also does announcing for this thing called uh, Lucha Vavoom, <laughs> which is a combination uh, Lucha Mexican wrestling, right, and um, what do you call that where, where it's uh, stripping with craft cocktails? <laughs> like a burlesque or like a... Yeah, burlesque. Thank yeah. you. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> I, I wasn't doing a bit there. I really did lose the word burlesque. Yeah. But he, so he, he announces this and, and Jordan has occasionally, has a couple of times filled in for him on uh-huh. these shows. And just the amount that the people just want to see Blaine, like it's as though you're... <laughs> It's like, it's as though you're the guy who replaced Kareem at center on the Lakers, you know, or it's like you went to see Hamilton in the third week and Lin-Manuel is taking the, taking the night off. And so you got to see the understudy, Mm -hmm. like the amount of you're not Blaine Kapatch that 
Jordan has suffered filling in for him on those in those announcer jobs. Oh man. Well, I feel bad for Jordan, but I but I feel I'm really glad that Blaine has this following, you know, in LA for these events because that's the thing he's he's been on big tv shows on at midnight and stuff but i don't think he's like a household name as far as comedians go he's not someone hummingbirds who, are descended from humming dinosaurs <laughs> so stupid <laughs> maybe he should be a household name that's what this conversation is, is convincing me of <laughs> mr ed's real name is mr ed begley jr <laughs> So stupid. <laughs> you were correct to warn me. Oh my god, I'm g- giggling at this all day. <laughs> that was Blaine Capatch, who is on Twitter at Blaine Capatch. It's Final Friday. Well, we have time for one more follow today, and I saved my personal favorite for last. Jesse, I asked you for someone who makes the internet a better place, and you picked Linda Holmes, who is on Twitter at Linda Holmes and on Instagram at Linda Holmes ninety seven. Linda is the host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour and the author of the best-selling novel Evie Drake Starts Over. And she has a new book coming out next month called Flying Solo. So you two know each other in real life, right? You've worked together a bunch? Yeah, Linda started maybe 10, 12 years ago as the pop culture blogger at NPR. She had been a TV writer. She had originally been an attorney, but she was hmm. she was one of the original writers for Television Without Pity, which was kind of the first website to build criticism and fan culture and serious thought and irreverence around television together, like really invented contemporary pop culture discourse right? functionally. And she went to work for NPR. And in the early days of podcasting, when NPR was goofing around and trying little ding-dongs here and there, they let Mike Pesca do a podcast about gambling. And they let Linda and and a couple friends of hers do a roundtable podcast about pop culture. What a good bet. Yeah, and I don't even know if now, 15, 12 years later, whatever it is, mm-hmm. NPR knows what it has. Yeah. Um, but Pop Culture Happy Hour is monumentally successful and on the basis of absolute merit. And, you know, it only became Linda's job at NPR a couple years ago. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, she's still like, writing about all sorts of other stuff, covering things for the site, and now she's really, I think, all in on the podcast, right? Yeah, pretty, pretty close. She's still, she'll, she'll, she still writes stuff for the site and does stuff for other NPR stuff, but, but it's no longer is the show her sideline. This show that mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of people listen to, right? And so my connection to this is that my show is distributed by NPR, but you know, NPR is based in Washington D.C. I know five or six people at NPR. (laughs) Like I don't even have like regular meetings with NPR personally. They're a distant organization that I respect and I'm grateful for the partnership of, but you know, I would go to NPR and I would be such an outsider. You know, I'd go every other year or something, you know, every 18 months I'd fly to Washington DC to have some NPR meetings. And, um, I would just end up standing at Linda's desk <laughs> and Linda had a desk, you know, just out in the big open plan office. And she was the only person around that was familiar with my work. <laughs> um, possibly my, our direct partner connector boss person was mm-hmm. familiar, but besides that. Right. And she was also familiar with the feeling of, being part of this institution that you really like and you're really glad to be part of, Mm -hmm. but also feeling like you are completely on the outside of it. Right. So we would stand there and complain together, except that Linda is not a complainer. And so it was in a funny way, kind of inspirational to complain with her because She's so smart and caring and decent. And at at no point did she bring up the fact that her show is seven times more popular than mine. (laughs) Um, You know, I I was just grateful to get to know her, you know, like she's always, I think to me as, as a critic represented something that's really special, which is, you know, she started out writing about the amazing race She has no opposition to cultural comfort food. 
She also is really brilliant and insightful as a critic. She does not let go her standards in writing or considering comfort food. And she's every bit as able to consider and write and talk about non-comfort food, high art. And I think that she is really special in the way that she combines the embrace of the value of, for example, warmth or laughter, which are things that can be good about something, though you wouldn't know if you had ever read culture criticism, with very consistent insights in all areas. And her audience on Pop Culture Happy Hour, and with all due respect to Stephen and Glenn and uh, all the other folks who are on Pop Culture Happy Hour, Mm -hmm. um, it's her audience. She is like a god to them. (laughs) And I think it's because there are a lot of people out there who are very hungry for someone who is really smart, really cares, has real insight, all of those things, and also likes stories about romance. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many people like that who want to talk about whatever it is, Tarantino, right? Dime a dozen. Yeah, Tarantino's amazing. And, And like Linda is has great insights about Tarantino, right? Mm-hmm. But like, there's a lot of that and there's not a lot of people who can bring the same thought and insight to last Christmas, you know, which right. was pretty, pretty great, by the way. I really like really? it. Really? Oh, I skipped it. Okay. Some things don't work about it, but I think it's pretty great, right? Okay, good job. And like, she is a novelist and she wrote a romantic novel that really... I was worried to read it just because I'm always scared to look at something my friend made because I'm worried I won't like it. Exactly. But it is, it embodies those qualities, which is to say that it is a very real, deep, rich uh, literary novel that is also about people finding love in unusual circumstances and embraces the wonderful values of romantic fiction and has no need to be an ironic twist on that right? or a snarky version of that or even a junky, a venal version of that. It just is human beings love love. And what if we told a really deep emotional story that represents the best of stories about love? The one of the most important themes in human life. Yeah. You know, and it's not like, could we make romantic fiction better? Like Linda likes romantic fiction just as she likes non-romantic fiction because she's a really insightful person who ingests a lot of culture. Right. <laughs> you know? Like it's a, it's a non-judgmental level of insight that is, that is really special. And yeah, I mean, I just think that in the world of culture criticism, somebody who can call out bullshit without being a jerk and celebrate things that are warm and nice and funny without being dumb Mm -hmm. or, you know, without being, uh, undiscriminating. Like that's a really special set of stuff to bring to the table. She's not the only person who's able to do that, but she's extraordinary at it. I I also would add there that, um, you know, I think her interests are, they represent a set of values that is more common among women Hmm. who are, dramatically underrepresented in the world of culture criticism yep, and just in the world of creating the hegemonic values of culture. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that she has like women's taste or something. I just think that she, there are things that she's more into that are dramatically underrepresented in the world of pop culture criticism and consideration because they're things that fewer dudes are into and there's just a lot more dudes doing that job yeah i mean to your point earlier there's nothing wrong necessarily with if you believe tarantino's a genius saying tarantino's a genius but this is the whole thing of representation in front of and behind the camera and writing about media all of that stuff is just all of the inputs there it ripples outwards yeah i mean 
like here I am, right? I'm a I'm a cishet dude, and I'm sure I'm I'm a little bit fancy compared to some, you know, but I'm a little artsy. But in general, like yeah, I mean I like sports and um, I like heist movies, if not like uh, kickboxing movies. Mm-hmm. And I always really learn a lot from Linda's writing, especially. And she's a real she's a real advocate for good stuff. And especially good stuff that that might not otherwise get the attention that it needs. I mean, like, there's like these lanes of acclaim, you know, like painting with John on HBO Max, right? This is not Oscar fair. Sure. But this is, this could not be a more classic expression of Gen X artsiness. Good show. Like, I really don't. I'm not putting it down and saying this. I may yeah. sound like I am, but I genuinely am not. There's like an open lane for doing a great job of that, right? That is a thing that will immediately critics understand what it is. They're gonna, it's you know, they're gonna recommend it to all their REM loving friends. And there are lots of lanes of things that don't have <laughs> that aren't open, and people like Linda have to fight to open them up. And so I'm really glad that she's there and I'm really glad that she is so brilliant and responsible in so doing. Well, the category is that Linda has made the internet a better place. I think you have ably demonstrated why she has. But before we go, what is something that the rest of us can do? What can regular folks do to learn from her example? Man, you know, something she does really consistently and that she often reminds me about both in terms of my own mistakes and in terms of other people doing stuff on the internet that gets me down Mm -hmm. is I think she is so consistent about remembering that there are human beings on the other side of the screen Mm. and like Linda is very nice person right but she's, it's not like she's the kind of critic who only says things about things she thinks are good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not that she's would never say something negative about something. She often does, especially when it's important. But I think ultimately she she is never going to forget that there is a human being there. And that making art is hard. Yeah. And that when she is criticizing art, she should be criticizing the art and not the person unless it is actually the person she wants to be criticizing, <laughs> you know? Right. And that is something that I think extends more broadly across the internet. And I don't think you have to be, I mean, like Linda is a professional culture critic. It's her job to say what she thinks about things. And I think we all have opinions about stuff and it's great to have opinions about stuff. I wouldn't have a job if I didn't have opinions about stuff. But I think it's easy to forget how human the other, the people on the other side of the screen are. And I'm friendly with this guy, Paul Feig, who directed that movie last Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. Paul is one of the kindest people you could ever hope to meet in your life. Almost comically so. (laughs) And, And he's done such wonderful work, right? And he made that Ghostbusters movie that troglodytes hated. Mm -hmm. And were wrong about because it was great. And, you know, I'm not going to speak for Paul, but it really hurt him. Yeah, I bet. And ultimately, like, respecting that person's humanity doesn't preclude you from having opinions about their work. It doesn't preclude you from sorting out what's important about something and what isn't and what needs to be opposed and what doesn't and all that stuff. It just is a matter of of simply acknowledging that like on the internet, the scales are all f***ed up. The balances are all f***ed up. The incentives are all f***ed up. And so you really have to make an active choice to be decent to others. That's a perfect place to end it. Make an active choice to remember other people's humanity. Well, that was the amazing Linda Holmes who is on Twitter at Linda Holmes and on Instagram at Linda Holmes 97. Jesse Thorne, thank you for coming on Follow Friday and sharing all of these follow recommendations with us. Before we go, let's make sure that listeners know how to find you online. Where do you want them to follow you? I'm on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. 
which is a, a heady mix of links to in-depth arts and culture interviews with major figures in American culture like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and David Byrne and dick jokes. <laughs> um, much to the chagrin of National Public Radio, <laughs> my very classy business partners. And then I'm on Instagram at put.this.on where you can find pictures of my outfits and antiques that I have for sale in my store. <laughs> so it's a real, it's a real, I have a very muddled brand, Eric. <laughs> and your podcast one more time are Bullseye, Jordan Jesse Go, and Judge John Hodgman. And you can also check out MaximumFun.org. You can follow me on Twitter at HeyHeyESJ, and please subscribe to the free Follow Friday newsletter at followfriday.substack.com. If you like this episode, then check out the past Follow Friday interviews with Story Break co-host Freddie Wong, Fanti co-host Travel Anderson, and The Simpsons writer Brothi Gupta. Follow Friday is a production of lightningpod.fm. Our theme music was written by me and performed by Yana Marie. Our show art was illustrated by Dodie Hermerwan. And our social media producer is Sydney Groden. Special thanks to our Big Fry Patreon backers, John and Justin. That's all for this week. This is Eric Johnson reminding you to talk about people behind their backs. And when you do, say something nice. I'll see you next Friday. One more time, thank you to our sponsor, Apprentice. On average, business executives that work with Apprentice save 60 hours a month in management, sales, and marketing tasks. Apprentices help you free your schedule by working on a range of projects from digital marketing to project management. And whatever projects you are starting in Q2, you can get four weeks of free executive assistance if you're a C-level executive with fewer than 30 employees. Connect with Apprentice's matching team today at this URL, followfriday.net slash apprentice. Again, that's followfriday.net slash apprentice.